Well, good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon, whenever you happen to be watching this DVD. My name is Dave Riddell. I'm a pastoral therapist and counsellor, and I spend much of my time teaching, preaching, counselling, and uh, sharing with people my vision for mental and emotional health throughout New Zealand and Australia and uh, other parts of the world as invited. And I'm pleased to be invited to come talk to you folks about a topic that is very dear to my heart, the subject of passion, the subject of zeal, and later on uh, to speak of relationship and intimacy to follow it up. But for now, I want to uh, remember the last time I was here, I think, I used a phrase you may have picked up on since. It comes from the theme to a movie called Field of Dreams. And in that movie, there is a theme, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it goes something like this, if you build it, they will come. And my vision for my students, for my clients, and for the people I teach is that if you learn how to build the, uh, the safe place, then God will show up. And I am convinced that this is his vision for his people, for his body, for his church, that we learn how to build a safe place that his spirit can come to. Uh, One of my hobbies uh, in uh, Nelson, where I live, is breeding doves. And I have a dove who just loves to watch out for me. And when I come out of my office, she's watching for me somewhere in the garden. And she zooms down from her tree and comes to land on my shoulder. Uh, Whether it's for my sake or for the food I offer, well, you be the judge. But what I've noticed is that if I'm in a hurry or if I'm stressed, she won't land on me. She'll make a decision within a meter or two of me as to whether I'm a safe place to land. And if I'm stressed, she won't land. she'll, She'll head straight back to the tree she came from. And uh, that's a pretty quick judge of character. And I sometimes think the spirit is like that. Uh, We attract him through prayer. We invoke his presence through worship. We know uh, that he dwells in the praises of his people. But as the spirit comes, I think uh, we can quench his spirit, as scripture says. And uh, it's true. You can quench the spirit through unbelief, uh, through strife, through impatience, Uh, through materialism, etc., etc. You know, you can't spend your whole day watching television and then expect to walk straight into the presence of God. No washing, no labor, no anointing, nothing. And so as we make a place for the Spirit in our church and in our house groups, I am convinced that uh, that zeal, that enthusiasm, that passion comes as we wait on Him. And uh, I remember a pastor from my youth saying, and it was just a throwaway line, but I remember him making the remark that in ministry he'd far sooner uh, cool down a fanatic than warm up a corpse. And I, I get to understand where he's coming from now as I look across my classes and I see people there, some of whom quite apathetic, some of whom are quite cold to this truth, cold to the spirit, Uh, cold to the anointing. Others are, you know, just a bit OTT. 
And I've got to tell you, it's easier to calm them down than it is to try and breathe life into the cold ones. And I think that's worth mentioning because I determined there and then as a young man to be passionate and to be a zealot and to love the Lord thy God with all my heart. And I remember looking up the word for enthusiasm and discovering that it's a Greek word and it comes from the root words entheos. Now, in theos, in Greek, means to be filled with God, theos for God, etc. And the Greeks believed that an enthusiastic person was naturally filled by the gods. And that's the origin of that word. And I'm often reminded of that when I see a leader, an evangelist, a prophet, when I see someone powerful in the spirit, and I sense the zeal and the enthusiasm that they are burning with. You know, some people wake up in the morning and they say, good morning, God. Others, good God, morning. That's the difference in attitude. And over the time of ministry, I've come to understand that ultimately your attitude will determine your altitude. You may think that was trite, but I have proved that over and over again, that if your attitude is your environment, and it is your spirit's environment, because your attitude is of the soul, and the soul is like a playground for the spirit. And if passion is intrinsic to your attitude, then your spirit is safe. But if, uh, if, your, if your mind is cold to the things invisible, to the things of the spirit, if your mind is cold to love and to worship and to serving your fellow man, then your spirit is in danger of being frozen. Paul speaks about everything we do, doing as unto the Lord. I have served people, I have served the Lord, and I've got to tell you, enthusiasm for serving people soon runs out unless you understand that it's God's family you're serving, and therefore you are serving the Lord. When uh, Jesus commissioned uh, the disciples, he said, go feed my sheep. He said to Peter, feed my lambs, and I have dedicated my life to doing just that. And I've got to tell you that it's only because I'm serving the father of the people that I've always been enthusiastic for serving people. You know, people can be dangerous. You can become disillusioned serving people unless you always remember that it's the father of those children ultimately that you are serving. So I just thought I'd make a few notes here for you to go through and just to pick out some of the essential ingredients to where I think passion and zeal come from. Uh, Zeal is an Old Testament word, and you really only hear it in church nowadays. Uh, So let's talk about zeal, and let's talk about passion, and let's talk about enthusiasm for living. The first thing I want to point out here, number one, is that we are called to be participators, not spectators. You get the choice. And I, 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 I'm convinced now that there are basically two kinds of people in life. There are those who are happy to sit up in the bleachers, to sit on the grandstands and to watch, and those who want to actually get into the arena and make it happen. And uh, that means stirring the spirit. They said to Smith Wigglesworth one time at one of his great miracle services, what happens, Smith, if the spirit doesn't stir? There will be no miracles. There will be no power. What would you do? 
And uh, Smith said, your question is born of ignorance of Scripture. He said, as ministers of the anointing, we have the right and we have the power to stir the Spirit. He said, if the Spirit won't stir, then I can stir the Spirit. And as a therapist and counselor, I've noticed that a lot of people have concluded as children, sometimes under the care of angry fathers and angry mothers, sometimes in the presence of violence in the family, that a child can come to the conclusion that the way to keep safe is to keep silent. And I want to ask you, if you're listening to me today, this morning, tonight, whatever, I want to ask you, could it be that as a child you learned that it's always safer to keep silent and it's safer to stay as an observer? You may need to really challenge that conclusion you've laid down in your psyche all those years ago because it'll still be crippling you and preventing you and preventing your initiative, preventing your courage from rising because you've got this very early program that says, hey, when you're amongst adults and big people, just watch, just observe quietly, stay out of the way and uh, don't get in the way. Can I just suggest that watching is out of date now? Can I just suggest that observing silently and keeping your thoughts to yourself is out of date now? Can I suggest that as a modus operandi, actually it's safer to get into the arena and be heard. It's safer to lift your voice. You don't always have to be right before you speak up. As a matter of fact, if we had to wait till we were certain we were correct, who would speak up? I've got a little saying that coaches me through those moments, you know, for things worth doing, it's worth doing badly while I get better at it. And that has given me courage to get into the arena, have a go, make it happen, stir the spirit. You know, don't leave it to the ordained. Uh, that's the malaise of the church. That's the toxic uh, atmosphere within the church when people leave it to the ordained. If you haven't been ordained and you're reluctant to do anything or say anything or rise up because you have no ordination, Give me a phone call. I'll ordain you over the phone. I'm not being um, I'm not being facetious here, but we cannot wait till other people recognize or see or ordain. We've actually got to begin to uh, understand that those who are led by the Spirit of God are already ordained. Bible says they that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So you know, involved is exciting. Observation and watching from the grandstands, boring. Get it? Involved, exciting, just watching, boring. And that leads me to my point number two, which I would say is an absolutely vital factor in this ingredient, in this recipe for passion, and that would be to minimize predictability. Say predictability. That's right. That would be probably the number one reason why people left the historic churches in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. It just got boring. It got so predictable. You knew what was going to happen next. Nothing new was going to happen. There was no fresh bread. It was the same old, same old stale crust and water. And people are built for more than predictability. The spirit yearns for life. The spirit yearns for the manifest presence of the spirit. And you know something? If you're going to a meeting where the facilitators are relying on the Holy Spirit, one thing I'll promise you, it will not be predictable. 
when the Spirit comes, He'll bring His own agenda and you will not be able to predict it. Now, I understand liturgy. I know why there's a liturgy. I also know that liturgy, even today, is killing many, many churches. And I'm not just talking the Anglican or even the Presbyterian liturgy. I'm talking about any order of service that does not make way for the anointing, that does not make way for God turning up, that does not make way for inspiration in the service. What am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say have an order of service by all means, but know when to drop it. Know when to let it go. Know when to, I guess guess I'm trying to say that a, a liturgy is a good servant, but a toxic master. When the liturgy is everything, then you've got predictability and immediately you've got death. If we say that they uh, that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, then we say, then have an order of service, but dump it when the Spirit takes over. You know, I'm chasing encounter with God. I'm not chasing religion, and not very many people are, actually. If you're leading a meeting or a house group or what, a prayer meeting, always go for a move of the Spirit. Always go for a visitation and do not be satisfied until the presence of God has come. That's what you're there for. And that expectation is what makes a safe place for God. No expectation is not a safe place for the spirit of the king. No expectation is a place of apathy. So begin to stretch yourself and see what God will do. He could do no mighty work because there was no expectation amongst his kith and kin uh, where uh, he was in Capernaum uh, ministering to the people who knew him as a child, as a youth. Now, the third point that I'd like to make, if you're making notes, is I think of initiative like a muscle. I have noticed that the number one criteria for leadership is initiative. Some people have it, some people don't. Some people assume that if you haven't got it, then you haven't got it. But let me talk to you for a moment about initiative. It marks the followers from the leaders. It marks the people who can see the need from the people who can't see the need. And uh, if you're hoping to lead in the body of Christ, you cannot do so without initiative. Holy Spirit initiative, not so much carnal initiative, but basically you can um, atrophy, become atrophized, you can atrophize or exercise initiative. And uh, occasionally, you know, you're going to have to proposition the leadership, you're going to have to talk to the people in charge, negotiate with them if you have to, and then make it happen. Initiate it, negotiate it, and then make it happen. Make a difference. Every morning I take my wife in my arms and I say, Lord Jesus Christ, may we make a difference today. No matter what we're doing, may we make a difference. May the world be a little bit better place because we lived on it today in some small, small way if necessary. But people join here in the team. Join here with the ministry and and make a difference. Upper hut can be yours if every person says, hey, today I'm going to make a difference. You can can look back like I do on a lifetime spent making a difference. I think back, 
you know, to when I began in ministry about 30 years ago. And I hadn't written any books. I hadn't run any conferences. I hadn't counseled anybody. I was just determined to be available to God uh, to use me. And now there are literally tens of thousands of people around the world today who run their life by living wisdom principles, who have attended my two-week intensive class in mental and emotional health, or who have sat before me receiving counsel to heal their marriages, their emotional lives, to get them off medication or drugs, and to get them into sound thinking. I had no idea when I began to what extent God could use me, but every day I just look up and say, Lord, I want to look back on my life. Have you heard that phrase, uh, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ is going to last. And I take that seriously. You may think it's a bit trite, but I take it seriously. I've spent a lot of my life doing stuff that's not going to last. And so in the latter years of my life, I'm just getting more and more fired up to make sure that I'm building gold, silver, precious stones and no more wood, hay and stubble. What about you? That's the question I'm putting to you, isn't it? And number four, if you're making notes, I also love to declare war on obligation. Obligation. It's mixed in with religion. It's mixed in with church. It's mixed in with duty. But let me tell you, obligation is poisonous to motivation. Obligation will undermine your motivation because ultimately obligation is ought to. Obligation is martyr, uh, martyrsville. I, I want for church to be a martyr-free zone. I want your heart in it. I want your heart where your body is. I want your body where your heart is. I don't want them in two different places. That's martyrdom. That's obligation. And that will lead you to disappointment and to disillusionment. Can you honestly tell me that when you go to work in the morning, your heart and your body go to the same place? When you go to church, when you go to the house group, when you go to the prayer group, can you tell me, please, that your heart and your body inhabit the same place? Right now, I'm in this conference room. I'm utterly freezing, and that's fine, because I guess what? My heart is hot, and there's nowhere I would rather be than right here. My wife's at the mall running hot with the plastics and she can do some serious damage, but even that doesn't bother me because why? Because my heart and my body are in the same place and that's the key to zeal. That there, did you get that? That's the key to enthusiasm. And you know, sometimes if you find that your heart isn't where your body is, you're in a pretend agreement with your boss, with your spouse, with your family, with your children. You feel like you're just being used, taken for granted, playing the martyr. Stop it. That stuff will kill you. You know, the reason that Jesus stopped at Gethsemane was so that when he went to the cross, there was no sense of obligation. There was no sense of martyrdom. It says there that zeal for thy house hath consumed me. It says there that in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you could say he got ownership of his sacrifice. I love that phrase that it was spoken of him a day or two earlier where he set his face like flint for Jerusalem. That means he got focused. That means he knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going and he got focused. Now, you don't see focus in the New Testament. You see set his face like flint. 
You don't see ownership in the Bible. It's a modern term. But what you do see is, I delight to do thy will, O God, and to walk with thee is not grievous unto me. I want to spell that scripture out to people who give tithes and offerings reluctantly. You know, God has no use for reluctant giving. Your heart's not in it. You feel, um, you feel obligated to, but there's no joy in it. There's no vision for it. You know, you've seen that sign, the flogging shall continue till the morale improves. I sometimes think that that's got a carryover with donating money. You know, I'll flog you with more scriptures and more sermons until you give more money. It's just back to front. Can I, while I'm on that subject, can I just suggest this? Because, you know, when it comes to time and it comes to money and it comes to effort, aren't we talking about commitment Now, here's the problem with commitment. People too quickly forget that commitment does not have to be preached for, does not have to be wound up, does not have to be hyped up. Commitment is the automatic result of being captured, I say captured, by a vision. When you've got the excitement, the commitment comes automatically. You don't have to wind it up and stir it up and flog it up. When you get a vision of how much better things could be around here. You know, some people see things as they are and say, why? But President Kennedy saw things as they could be and said, why not? And I think he stole it from George Bernard Shaw, but I'm not too certain about that. What I do know is this. Commitment is the automatic result of getting excited about how things could be. Can you get excited about how things could be? That's leadership. That's vision. And when you've fallen in love with the project and the future and how it can be, commitment's neither here nor there. You despise the cross. You despise the shame because for the joy set before you, you're given it heaps and you're going for it. You know, obligation equals exhaustion. Make no doubt about it. I, I work with people who are burnt out. I work with people who are disillusioned. And I've got to tell you, obligation will result in exhaustion. It will result in resentment. And it will result in disillusionment. And if you are feeling a bit disillusioned, you've been hearing about revival for years, you've been hearing about taking the city for years, and you're stale and you're stayed and you know it, let me just share something with you that could really help, because this helped me in my own life when I got a hold of this. This is a little secret you may never have heard before. Are you ready? It's this. Disillusionment comes prior to promotion or it comes prior to despair. So you can have it either way. If you are feeling disillusioned today, then look up because your promotion is coming. It's the great inventors who are first disillusioned. It's the great leaders who first said there's got to be a better way. But disillusionment is a crossroads because at disillusionment, you're either going to invent a new mousetrap, you're either going to find a new way of teaching, a new pedagogy, a new system, a whole new dynamic, you're going to strategize something completely radical and far better, or you're going to give in to despair. So keep an eye on disillusioned people because they can go either way. 
finally, point number five on this topic of zeal and enthusiasm and passion, I suggest you need to settle the matter. Settle the matter. What matter, I hear you ask? The matter of a cause. What is a cause that's worthy of your life? That's the issue. I've found my cause, mental and emotional health in the church. You're not going one millimeter higher than your attitude. I've found my cause, setting people free from mental and emotional pain, setting them free from creating hell in their own lives while they live. That's my cause. What's yours? Is it church growth? Is it healing? Is it individual growth? Is it personal growth? Is it gifts? Is it generosities? Is it healings? Is it hospitalities? Is it administration? I've found my cause. You need to find your cause. You know, Viktor Frankl said that one of the things that killed men during the war was they had no cause to live for bigger than themselves. No cause bigger than myself. And do you know something? I have realized that self makes a very small cause, not big enough to live for. Often people are depressed until they have children, and then they have a cause to live for. They're depressed until they find a wife or a husband, and then they have a cause to live for. Yes, yes, I know there are people who are not depressed until they find a wife or a husband. There's always going to be those. There are those who are depressed after they have children. But let me tell you something. Until you've got a flag to nail your colors to, what are you living for? We were created to serve. Make absolutely no mistake about that. Most depressed people that I work with have no cause. They don't know why they're here. They don't know what they need to serve. They don't feel useful. They don't make themselves useful. They've never upskilled themselves to become useful. They don't know who they are. What defines me? I think it's the cause I serve. Yes, I'm a male. Yes, I'm a husband. Yes, I'm a counsellor. But what defines me must surely be what I prioritise, what I call vital in my life. And Jesus made it clear to me that uh, as he makes it clear to all of us that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So can I just ask you again, where is your treasure? Is it in the body of Christ? Is it in the local church? Is it in people? Materialism will not satisfy you. Another house, more property, a newer car, these things will not satisfy you. I know that because I've done them all and I've watched other people do them. I'll tell you what will satisfy you. Interesting comment about David in the Old Testament. He said, it says there that David served his generation. And that's why you're here, to serve your generation. Seek to build his kingdom by serving his people. 
and seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know these scriptures. You're familiar with these scriptures. And please understand that you will define yourself by what you call a cause. Finally, in closing, I just want to mention something that uh, I read in Jesse's office not one hour ago. I've never seen it before, but it made total sense to me. And it ties in with what Paul said. Paul is talking about meetings, and you know about meetings, church meetings. But let me tell you this. One of the things that brings life into a meeting is when everybody contributes. Every member contributes something, and it's not just left up to the ordained, and it's not just left up to the professionals. And Paul's conclusion on this little talk was, he said, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you gather together, each one has a teaching, has a psalm, has a hymn, has a doctrine, has something to offer. And that's for, I guess that's a plea for meetings to have multiple involvements. Meetings where everybody's got something to offer. And I just read on uh, Jesse's uh, office wall, and he is racking his brains to think what on earth could be on his office wall that I would be about to share, because I haven't told him this yet. This is just to give him some suspense as well. But Jesse, I I love that quote by William Glasser. Uh, He said, the uh, psychiatrist said, we recall 10% of what we read, 10%. We recall 20% of what we hear, 20%. Actually, if my wife's speaking, I'd like to think it's a bit higher than that. But you know, we sort of tune in and out, us husbands. We recall 30% of what we see. We recall 50% of what we see and hear, 70% of what we discuss. And I just love my classes to have a good discussion time over each topic before we move to the next one, because I know that's true. We recall 80% of what we experience. Now, we're not talking here about being in the grandstands. We're talking here about being in the arena. 80% of what you experience in the arena, you will recall, and 95% of what we teach to others. And that sort of challenges our model of doing church. That challenges our model of meetings. That challenges the way we structure the meetings, the sermon, the professional ministry. That challenges everything we do and know about current church practice. And I'm for that challenge. And only when you know that there will be opportunity for you, will you come ready for something more? Will you come expecting something more? Only when you know that you're not going to be relegated to the grandstands will you come expecting to offer, expecting to pray for somebody, expecting to prophesy, expecting to see something in the spirit you've never seen before, expecting to bring a scripture or a testimony, expecting even to bring a need that allows other people to minister. What then is the outcome, brethren, when you come together? Everybody's got something to offer. It's as if you uh, arrive home, turn the power on, and immediately the jug begins to boil the water, the electric blankets begin to heat the bed, the lights light up the whole place. Everything does what it's designed to do when the power hits. And my vision for this church is that when the power hits, everybody does 
something according to what they were designed to do when the power hits. May the power hit this place because this place is expecting it. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, taking some time to listen to me. Um, I just uh, trust that what I've spoken into your lives via this camera um, is going to be a life to you. And uh, if not, um, see Jesse. <laughs> if it's been great, email me. I'd love to hear from it. D.Riddell at clear.net.nz. But uh, thank you, guys. Thank you for your time. And I hope that uh, this does prove blessed of God. Amen.